Generation, Fred Hill. You know us, you love us, because we take you beyond conspiracy theories right to the heart of conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host Christopher Dean. Ready to roll. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to answer the tough questions facing the thinking believer. As we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing, Tough questions. Is Jesus the son of God or a raging lunatic? Was Jesus merely a wise man, you know, a good moral teacher? Or is he currently God incarnate, sent to correct everything wrong in this cosmic universe? We're going to talk about that and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill Tough Questions. Welcome back, ladies, gentlemen, everyone from across the podverse. Welcome to another segment of Tough Questions, where we aim to provide answers to some of today's most challenging questions facing the thinking believer. But before we get into that, first things first, Christopher Dean. How's it going, bro? I'm doing good, man. How about yourself? I'm I'm pumped. I'm ready to go today. You're pumped? What's up, man? What's got you so excited? Uh, Maybe because we're talking about Jesus. Like, doing the show notes for this show really uh, it made an impact on me. You know, I thought that what was going to have you so excited was the fact that we have actually made it to the final recording of 2022. It's the fact that we finally made it. <laughs> this is episode... 40. I think this is 40. Yeah. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. That is a lot of content release. It is. Considering we started March 30th of this year, and this would actually be 40 weeks straight that we've been recording uninterrupted. That's something. I'm proud of that, man. Because we were noobs 40 weeks ago. Right? And now we've reached a point where we have approximately 750 listeners. Yeah, like we're averaging about 730 to 750. Yeah, we're reaching about 30 countries. We've met great people like Matt from The Great Deception, Ryan Dean from Dangerous World, Ghost from My Third Eye podcast. Like it has been. And we've had a tremendous amount of fan support. Yeah, that has been amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing, man. (laughs) It's it's, it's, all of this has been mind blowing. It, it, yeah, it has been a really, really cool experience. Lots of work. Yeah, yeah. It's been a ton of work, man. It seems like I think right there in February when we did Ryan Dean's show, things really shifted gears. Yeah. And it has been nonstop, boots on the ground, go, go, go. We have had the grind going, our nose to the grind wheel. Uh-huh. But the crazy thing is it's been really fun. It, yeah. And it, I can't believe we're at the end of the year recording our final episode for 2022 like that's that's crazy to say it, it has been quite a journey for sure well if i don't see you in 2023 man i really appreciate recording with you why wouldn't you see me uh rapture yeah maybe we should hold off on that yeah i'd say <laughs> so conversation for another day i actually touched on that a little bit in the notes oddly enough hence why i say maybe we should hold off on oh that. okay my bad i thought you meant like not today Oh, that's fun. Well, you know what? You do have a point. <laughs> there are some goals, some achievements, some high-ranking scores that I, I need to get before uh, out of here on the big one. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. So what do we have on the docket to talk about today, man? 
Well, today I want to talk about a little band called the Zach Brown Band. Zach Brown. Why does that name sound familiar? Probably because I've mentioned it before. No, no. There's a. I'm trying to think. Oh, there's a team principal for uh, Team McLaren in F1 Racing. His uh, the principal's name is Zach Brown. Okay. But I don't think this is the same person because he does not strike me as a music guy, and I'm sure he's way too busy to have a band. Okay. Because oh, I was going to ask if there's any connection or whatever. I don't think so. Okay. <clears throat> but there's a song called Chicken Fried. Okay. Have you heard it at all? I've, I think I I've mentioned not. to you, but I, I don't know if you've taken the time to actually listen to it. No, I haven't heard it. It's funny because there's a, uh, I've seen a meme a couple of times. It's like three songs that gets uh, white people lit at the club or something like that. White people can get lit? See, the whole meme confused me. Okay. Because I was like, I go crazy. A part of me emotionally goes crazy over this song, Chicken Fried. Okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it lit, and I don't know why we're listening to Chicken Fried in the club. So there's right. so so much wrong with the meme. But it there is a a part of a part of my what would I call it? The little kid inside me, maybe. Maybe not the little kid. But I can relate. This song's just about, you know things that we care about in life, right? Like one of the lines says that I, I was raised up beneath the tree or the shade of a Georgia pine. And that's home, you know, sweet tea, pecan pine, homemade wine, where the peaches grow. In my house, it's not much to talk about, but it's filled with love, it's grown in southern ground, and a little bit of chicken fried. Cold beer on a Friday night, a pair of jeans that fit just right, and the radio So it's just this, it's very much a country song. Yeah, I, I was trying to get with you there. <laughs> there was no bass. I didn't find a place you to stop my foot. Don't even ever, ever try to do that again. No, 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 no. That is not your department. Oh, that's funny. Oh, you sounded like a steam engine that had a wrench thrown in the middle of it. Wow, that's just hurtful. Well, imagine how my ears felt. What did you say? That's not what I sounded like. <laughs> That's what I heard. It was, it was, a, it was a bunch of white noise. No yeah. pun intended. Oh, that, yeah. Your racism is just leaking all over this episode already. <clears throat> oh, that's great. But no, there's a part of me that really relates to this song because it would be nice to just... Kick back with some fried chicken. Yeah. And I remember growing up, like as a kid, that's what I thought being an adult was going to be like. Okay. You know, the football game on whatever day they have football games, uh, the the cookout, the, mm -hmm. the the cute wife putting your kids in, in school. And that's just what life is about. Like the ideal good life. Yeah. You know, it's funny, man. I got I got one of those visions. It's it's not chicken, but I can relate emotionally. You know, I think we all conjure up a certain idea of what the preferred perfect life would be like you know what i mean mm -hmm. and um something about this world that seems to disabuse us of that notion and it can be rather difficult to let go of yeah you know, especially when you've latched on emotionally onto it yeah so i i have to, i really have to fight um especially when you know we talked about we've been doing this podcast for a while you mm -hmm. know when the grind hits and it's just 
sometimes you just feel the weight more days than others, you know? Yeah. And that leaves a part of my my heart, the naive part of my heart going, can't this can we just do this over here? Or can't this be easier? Yeah. Like why can't I have it just just like this? Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that, man. I have a friend that, that actually goes through very similar thought patterns and uh, I empathize with them, right? Cause mm-hmm. I, I can relate. And one of the things I've had to, to, to remind them of is that you can't look for heaven on this side of heaven. Oh, that's an interesting idea, right? You may experience glimpses of it, but this isn't heaven. This is a hostile war zone. So you have to stop looking for it here. Long for it there. Seek for it. Run for it. When you get there, it'll be way better. But the idea of wanting it here mm-hmm. always disappoints. It reminds me, there was a uh, a story about missionaries that kind of always gives me goosebumps a little bit. What's that? <clears throat> it's that there was this this married couple that were missionaries, and they had been overseas for years. Like, they they had not seen home for like 20 some odd years. Cause they're out there doing work. Right. Like really taking care of people. Right. And they come home and the same hotel that they're checking into, there's a, a band who was coming into their hometown. Right. Okay. And everyone for this band, because they had owned, they had been gone on tour for like a month, maybe two months, but this band comes home and there is just all the pulp and ceremony and fanfare for this band. Cause they're coming home. Right. Got you. And this this old missionary dude kind of gets, he lets it get under his skin. You know, he's out there really doing work, really, you know, in danger, working, taking care of people for a long time. And nobody notices when he comes back to his hometown. Mm. So his wife notices, and she's like, what's going on? And he just kind of explains the whole thing. And she pauses, and she looks at him, and she's like, we are not home yet. Yeah. You got to love a partner that can, or a friend that can call you back to reality. Yeah. Man, those reality gut checks hurt. They do hurt. But they're so necessary for maintaining. uh, There's this term that the military likes to use when you're not supposed to get distracted from things. Okay. Maintaining military bearing. Oh, I like that. I find out that's actually one of the reasons why they yell at you so much. So that you learn the discipline of focus on the objective, which they call maintaining bearing or military bearing. Oh, I like that. I I like the idea. I do not like the way (laughs) (laughs) that you have to train it into a person. I definitely don't like that. Right. Um, But I can appreciate what it's designed to do. Okay. And I think we have to implement that in our day-to-day lives as, and I don't want to call us an occupying force. But as a group of people that are in country in a hostile territory, right? This mm-hmm. isn't home. It's not. And we're not safe. We're on an outpost. And the American dream is not real. It, no, it's a fantasy. It is. And the, I mean, the the fried chicken and the football and the cold beer, like all the stuff that they sing about to incite these emotions, it's really just the bread and circus. Okay, you got to explain that. So I don't think most people heard that term. The Roman Empire, um, well, I guess the Roman Republic, right, fell. Roman Empire takes its place. Similarly to, uh, uh, this is, I hate the fact that I'm using this as an analogy, but Star Wars, right? Okay. So it becomes the, uh, uh, the, the 
Republic. And then Palpatine takes over, and then he ends up becoming the Emperor. So it becomes the Galactic Empire instead of the Republic. It's a, okay. it's a similar type of thing. But to pacify the normal citizenry, they provided food and a circus. So they're like, here, as long as you're fed and as long as you're entertained, you're not going to care that we're ruining your life and we're taking over. So when you hear the term bread and circus, that's what it's referring to. Because it was a proven, um, uh, attested tactic that worked. You give people bread, you give them something to watch, they're not going to care about anything else. You know, people have argued that our society is actually controlled via the same tactic. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, even football is considered, inter- it's registered as entertainment, right? It is. And I'm thinking about not just, you know, some of the the obvious forms of entertainment. Okay. You know, but some of the other things that we do that just are mindless. And TikTok. We get- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how you, how you use your TikTok. <laughs> Well, my TikTok, <laughs> my mind is very much so engaged with it. Uh, I sat yesterday listening <laughs> to a viral music video okay, of a guy who was in uh, high school who played a trombone solo that went viral, and he killed the solo. Okay. Like, so much so that every time I see the video, it's like one of those things that lives rent-free in my mind. Okay. But the way mine is set up, I get very informative and emotionally rewarding videos set to be on a daily moment, moment by moment basis. Okay. Okay. But anyhow, yeah, they, they use this, this tactic on us day in and day out through mindless entertainment. They do. And the whole, you know, movies, popcorn, all that type of stuff is still bread and circus. For sure. I think you got, we got to pay attention to that because it's easy to be lulled into that whole idea, you know, you, you and you hear it replicated uh, so often in various little little films or, or entertainment pieces. You know, I remember watching Transformers, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was the first one. And they're on the, they're on the Osprey helicopter. I mean, they're on an aircraft and they're going in country, but they're also trying to have a, a conversation about the good old days. And I'm like, what would you be doing back home? Oh, I'd be going to Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Having a dog and a beer. However, <laughs> however their accent is, right? A cold like, hot dog and a flat beer. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, oh, that sounds delicious. That's mm-hmm. the life. And what is that? Bread and circus. Bread and circus. 
Interesting. We don't even catch it how often it's, you know, grinded down into our, our conscience of this is what you need. This is what will relax you. That's a good point. It's scary. It is scary because because the reality is that our food is being poisoned by things like aspartame and trisodium phosphate. Our medical industrial complex is no no longer has health as their primary goal. It's been ilf- infiltrated by greed agendized political policy. Our government, our whole governmental system has on one level degraded into total chaos and tribalism and at the other end has given up national sovereignty for international alliance. Wow. So as much as it would be nice for my primary concern to just be who's going to win the next football game and if my beer is cold enough, it's not a realistic option for those that have our eyes open. If I want to care for my family, I've got to pay attention to more of these things. Yeah, it's funny. You ask a you ask a, a, a combatant that's in country, you know, fighting for their life, certain things they care about. And it's amazing how different and contrasted it is to what we care about. Yeah. You know, they might be walking around just really, I just want to take a shower. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a shower in four days when crawling through mud swamps and everything else. And I would just love a shower. I love a shower with indoor plumbing. <laughs> so I don't have to stand at the ready with my rifle worried about, are they going to drop mortars while my wang is out? Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to have to go fight. I, I just, I don't want that. I don't want to have to be on guard. I would love to just relax. I love to just feel grass under my feet. I'm tired of rocking, you know, walking on dirt and rock. Mm-hmm. It's totally, totally different. It is. And I'm not, I'm not at all saying that this is anywhere close to, to combat, but the Dean boys vacation. No, it's pretty close to combat <laughs> the way you guys like to vacation. Cause it doesn't seem like a vacation to me. It seems like a seer training, you know, survival, evasion, resistance and escape. <laughs> and I'm focused on the escape part. <laughs> That's funny. It is kind of like that. <laughs> exactly. But I, I've actually been thinking about it a lot lately. And I don't know if I'm just reminiscing because I don't have as much time to do that as a dad or, or, or what it is. But I was like, when we go out, you know, we either do long motorcycle trips. Um, you just carry the bare necessities or we've done long hiking trips and things like that. And one of the things that, that I think we really appreciate it is the, the perception shift. Like, I remember we did the Badlands in South Dakota, right? Okay. 169 square miles of wilderness. The only rules are if you set up a tent, we don't want to see it. And it has to be at least a mile away from a roadway. What do you mean? If you set up a Go. tent, we don't want to see it. You're not, you're not supposed to contaminate the scenery. Okay. So if you set up a tent... It has to be at least a mile away from the road, but because it's all open, they also don't want you to set up like in the middle of a plane. So if people are there to see the scenery and the bison, they don't want to see your stupid tent sitting in the middle of the field, even if you're a mile away from the road. Where else are you supposed to set up your tent? Well, there's hills and stuff, and and it's very desert-like, but there's all kinds of places. It's not a big deal. Like 169 square miles of wilderness, we were out there probably two whole days without seeing anything man-made. And you guys like that. Yeah, because here's what happens. It it gives you that per- perception shift. Not as much as combat, but it's in the safety of our 
nation. But we go into these things and we challenge ourselves. And one thing, it's just beautiful, right? Like you see stuff that you can't see unless you're in the middle of that that environment. I don't so, know. I would have given you Montana would be beautiful. You said that this was a wasteland. I mean, you I didn't say wasteland. Land. You said wilderness. Yeah. Desert wilderness, yeah. So I'm not seeing what would be beautiful in <laughs> desert wilderness. Sunsets and stars and Okay, maybe that. But but here's the other thing that we re- really appreciate cuz you even get this on the on the long hard bike trips, you know, hun- hundreds and hundreds of miles. You get the perception shift. So that right now in my pantry, I've got cans of beans and I've got cans of fruit and when this episode is done, I'm going to look at it and be like, ah, I'm just not feeling that. I might be hungry, but I'm not hungry enough for that." You know what? I'd rather just go to bed than the than have to like pour a can of beans and heat it up. I ain't got time for that. I'm going to bed. I'll I'll deal with it later. I'll get something. I'll pick something up from a fast food restaurant on my way to work tomorrow. I got you. We had canned pears in the Badlands, right? Uh huh. And we finally bust them out, right? We finally hike out there. We can't see anything. We're sweating. We're tired. We're exhausted. We've been under the sun for what feels like 37 hours straight, and it is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen is a can of pears and it tastes so like just the way that you interact with the environment is so different that that can of pears is such a treat you know so it's funny right now i know there's you know with an audience you know this size there's somebody listening to you going i know exactly what he means (laughs) like i can relate like, I didn't think anybody else felt that way. <laughs> but then there's also someone like me that is triggered <laughs> by the very idea. <clears throat> was, all, all you had was a can? A can of pears? How did you survive? We had more than a can of pears, but that was like our treat. That's crazy. So it was it was cool. But it's yeah. funny. I was watching this thing, this similar experience with... Um, some of our, our uh, special forces training, uh, special forces soldiers that go through their training, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things they were doing is they were talking about the things that are in their 72-hour rucksack. And they were unpacking and showing the items in there. And one of them was an MRE. Okay. And a guy was like, this is my favorite MRE. And I think it was something like beef struggling off or something. It did not <laughs> sound amazing, right? Right. And they were like, why is this your favorite MRE? And he goes, because you get a pretty tasty cookie. And I was like, I think our value perception... It's very different. It's really cool to experience that shift, though, to be able at least to be able to do that type of experiment, knowing full well you're not going to die. Right. right not right. in a combat situation. Right. But you can do it in just a couple of days. Your whole interaction with your environment shifts. And it's it's a neat thing. I tell you, the only time that really happens to me is when we lose power. OK. And you get thrown back to the Stone Age immediately. And you're like, oh, man, I can't use the oven. Maybe I can throw this in the mic. Yes, oh. <laughs> it is amazing how much of my life re- revolves around electricity. Yeah, and you take it away, and I'm and part of me was like, I don't know what to do. My iPad won't work. My iPhone won't work. I can't plug in my AirPods. I mean, you got residual battery power, right? Right. But you're still like you're you're limited. Mm-hmm. And before long, all of the comforts of modern life will be rescinded, and you'll be back. In the Stone Age, so to speak, having to really entertain yourself 
and vastly different means and what you appreciate, like you said, uh, it's going to change drastically because no longer are you talking about, Hey man, just let me, let me turn on my, uh, we turn on my entertainment stand or entertainment system and listen to, to something on Netflix or, or what have you. Now it's like, do I have light so I can go to the bathroom? <laughs> yeah. Right. Your whole world and your whole level of perception completely readjust. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the closest I get to what you're talking about, okay. but I can relate to it. All right. It's and, amazing how fast those that changes. It's also amazing how thankful I am for electricity. Because as soon as it comes back on, I'm like, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. I have I have been beamed back up to reality. But beyond being reliant on electricity, I think that these these agendas that we talk about, the satanic control matrix, really has a a, a vast impact on our daily lives. I would agree wholeheartedly. I was thinking about the uh, the American dream, you know, white picket fence, single forty hour work week, like that. That sounds like perfection to me, right? Man, screw the fence. How you get this forty hour work week? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I was doing the math the other day, and I was like, you and I probably pull around 120 hours a week between the two of us. That's not family. That's not podcast. That's straight work. That's corporate nonsense, bro. This week I work 61 and a half hours. And that does not count any of the stuff I had to do for the podcast. Yeah. That's straight work for the man. Mm-hmm. It hurts. You know what I mean? Uh, literally, that's the equivalent of me working a full-time job and a part-time job. Right. You, you want it to hurt a little bit more? So I did. No, I, did, I, did, I don't. I did some math. I did some math, and this makes me want to vomit, right? Okay. So on the conservative end, we probably work about 55 hours a week, give or take, right? Okay. So... As the, the heads of our households or whatever, it's about 15 hours extra over that 40-hour American dream, pie-in-the-sky nonsense, right? Yeah. It's like 15 hours, all right, whatever. That's a We're lot. not even debating whether or not 40 hours is a good metric for a work week. Right. We're, just, we're saying back in the day it worked, that one person could do 40 hours, and it supplied the finances to buy a home and a car and all that. Nowadays, we can't do that, and we're pulling 55 hours easy, right? Right. So just because, and this, is, this isn't just the way economies change. This is due to specific Babylonian money magic, right? Absolutely. This is satanic agendas, forces us to interact with our environment at 15 hours per week. And that's, that's just in this one... Extra. extra. Interact with our environment 15 hours a week extra. Extra. Right. So you could we could be upset about that. We could be like, that's 15 extra hours of sleep. That's like a Lord of the Rings marathon that you could get out. I mean, if you wanted 15 hours, but right. it, it's so much worse. That's about two and a half days a month. So that's more than a weekend a month. Right. And what's what's worse than that is here's the one that makes me mad. 32 days a year. Ah. 32 days. Days a year. That is that a is month. One month of your life that is sucked away due to Babylonian money magic. That's a month and another day. Yeah. Depending on the length of the month. Uh-huh. See, and, and, and as soon as you started saying it, I really started doing the, the calculus on the other end of the equation. Taxes? No. What I was thinking <laughs> of was the fact that When you're in a system that subjects you to variables beyond your control, 
you don't always realize the prolonged impact of those 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 new factors, right? Mm-hmm. The, what you just demonstrated is time that is stolen. Yeah. That's really the takeaway. It's not just that I have to work. It's the fact that an economy has been re-engineered that pays me less for my time, mm-hmm. but gives me the perception that I'm earning more. Right. Because the, the reason they pay me less is because the value is cheaper. Mm-hmm. So my dollar amount's gone up per hour in comparison to what people used to make. Right? Right, but the value of the dollar has, has plummeted. Has plummeted. Yeah. Which means that in order to meet the same equivalent, I have to use more of my life spent giving back to the system mm-hmm. than I'm able than I than I used to have to do. And that means I have less opportunities to invest it in things that are important to me. Right. Over a month. And and that's just this one figure. It doesn't even calculate the other stuff. Exactly. I mean, and, and they do this, they want to to sap our time so we don't have the opportunity to think. We don't have the opportunity to engage our minds. It helps destabilize the nuclear family. Right. You can't daddy's read, not home. You can't research. Yeah. You can't learn. You can't really creatively give solutions to complex problems, right? Mm-hmm. That would actually help better the, the family unit or better society as a whole. And then like you're saying, daddy's gone. The family unit is, is is affected. The wife's upset. I'm at home. I mean, we just talked about it from our perspective, having to work. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a commensurate impact on the wife. She has to spend more time alone, functioning as a single parent. Right. On a greater on a greater scale than what what her counterparts had to do in in years of a uh, uh, in yesteryear. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a huge deal. She has less support at home. Directly from her husband because he's gone at work. Mm-hmm. It's like Satan took the judgment that was put on man and twisted it even more to be an added like stab in the side. Yeah, you know, kids aren't able to spend as much time with with their parent, or maybe they're spending too much time with one, which can cause a, an abnormal development in their personality. Yeah, you yeah. you blame or you uh, attack the way I stand. On occasion, <laughs> attack is such a strong word. Oh, it's fitting. No, it's no, fitting. No, it's not. It's, it's not an attack. <laughs> I provide brotherly encouragement. And it's funny when you bring it up. I really think that it's some of the things that I, I got from my mom as she was the primary caretaker. Yeah, I'm a man. I'm an alpha man. But occasionally, apparently, I stand with some like a Charlie a, 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 a effeminate tones to it. I don't know uh, a Charlie male. <laughs> Yeah. Charlie. Yep. yep. I, I don't want you being seen as a Charlie Bell. Uh, that's funny. If you're going to be an alpha, alpha male, you have to stay on like one. I mean, we're making light of it, but really, like you, you end up picking up you do. imbalanced characteristics and unbalanced lessons. And there's a lot of work that I've had to do to unlearn the damaging things that I picked up in the midst of a divorce. And that stuff can transfer generationally. It can. It stops here. But exactly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these are some of the systemic ramifications of policies that are designed to achieve satanic agendas right. and objectives. And that's why we can't just live that chicken fried life. Exactly. Because this isn't home. 
right? Right. You're still, this is the ramifications of being in a hostile territory. Mm-hmm. This is why you can't be law to sleep of putting up your hammock while you're in country. <laughs> Talk about, I mean, this isn't, this isn't the life, but it's in bad. <laughs> like you do realize a mortar can come in. Ah, they haven't shot at us today. Right. Uh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. We are golden, right? You, you don't want to be caught with your pants down like that. Right. And I think that's what takes us to what we're going to talk about today. I think it is one of the most important issues that we are ever going to tackle on this platform. Okay, that's saying a lot. I mean, that's a pretty big bar. It is. It is. But just as our entire calendar hinges on one single point in time that separates B.C. and A.D., right? Mm-hmm. Today's question is the pivotal point that every person must orient their lives from. Whether, okay. you, you, whether you agree or disagree, like this is it. Because it's true Christianity, what the Bible teaches, it's diametrically set in opposition to every other religion making individual lives and eternity itself hinge on this one question. Was that carpenter of Nazareth just a good moral teacher? Or is Jesus Christ the divine son of God? We talk about the satanic control matrix and how we really need to be savvy about navigating our lives because there is inherent danger in the demonically influenced education system, satanic mind control via our news, entertainment, and technology, and the the coming new world order that has nothing but bad things in store for the individual. These issues are important, but they exist only, only in this life, right? And, okay. if, and if this life, as Chuck Missler points out, is just, I mean, it's great. It's beautiful sunsets and love and relationship. But if it's really just a digital projection of a larger reality, then we ought to be more concerned with that larger reality. You would think. You would think. I mean, it's difficult because it's not, it's not shoved in our faces, right? No, what's constantly shoved in our faces. Nothing to see here. Hey, 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 hey. Look over here. Nothing to see there. Just pay attention to this. Hey, did you get the score? Did you see what happened? You know your last team won, right? Hey, did you know that Black Panther 3 is getting ready to come out? <laughs> you don't want to miss that. Sundress season's right around the corner. All of this stuff is being thrown at us at a nauseating pace to bombard us and distract us from more important things. Right. And we really have to be intentional about batting it down and not wasting our attention on meaningless things. Because I think the pivotal point in this larger reality is, in fact, the being by whom, for whom, and through whom it was all created. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. It reminds me of this story that Ravi Zacharias told, which was that I believe he, he really liked uh, encyclopedias, right? Okay. And so he had saved up for a while to get a set, I believe it was Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay. And he got one and he's flipping through the the pages or whatever. And uh I actually I think it was before he got it. He's at the store and he's flipping through the pages and he gets to one of these questions and it's like a a super thick section of this book. Cuz so I believe he was talking to the guy like, "Why is this section, why did they spend so much time on this particular topic? 
It was a topic of God. And then the guy at the store told him, he said, that's simple. No other topic is a, as of greatest significance as how you answer the question of who is God, because it affects every other aspect of your life. Yes. I was like, Britannica got that? <laughs> Man, if Britannica understands that, I got to step my game up. Right. Because we, we believe that that being that created everything to be Jesus Christ, right? Or Yeshua HaMashiach. Right. But we didn't stumble upon this idea. We didn't accept it haphazardly. And I think that you and I realize that th on this point, we can't afford to be wrong. So we need to pay attention. You got to read through that thick section of the encyclopedia. Yeah, it's the most important topic, like you said, that you can deal with. And if you're, if you're right, the results are magnanimous. If you're wrong, the results are dire. Yeah. Dire. Like, it's not something we can toy with or play with. And sometimes people treat it as such a trite topic that it baffles me. It's unfortunate because I think that the comfort that we get to enjoy in America has a corresponding detrimental effect. Now, I think it's got lots of those. But I think one of the dangers that comes to us in the West, you know, being one of the richest countries, and there's a lot of issues that I have with America and, and its functioning and the fact that it's de dedicated to all pagan gods, but there really is a level of, of comfort and almost being lulled to sleep that we get that the rest of the world just doesn't have the luxury to be pampered like we are. I mean, right. if we're going to be brutally honest. And one of the side effects of this pampering is the fact that we can espouse any truth we want. And some people in America can actually live their entire life espousing whatever truths they want and never actually have to behave in accordance to them. <laughs> That's a mouthful, dude. It, re it reminds me of uh, this saying um, by JFK, which too often we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. Yeah. Right? And if you don't have a stark reality to disabuse you of your fantasy ideas, then you get lulled into this false sense of reality that when the check comes due, You've written checks with your fantasy that reality can't let you cash. Mm -hmm. And you are SOL. Right. So that's why we're tackling this today, because it is pivotal. Whether at the end of this episode or after you look into it yourself, no matter what side of Jesus Christ you land on, it is going to change your life and how you navigate. Okay, so I've got a question. Okay. <laughs> Where did we get this idea that Jesus was just a good moral teacher and not actually God incarnate? And it, I'm asking that from the perspective of, it seems intriguing to me that one attack against Jesus is that he never existed. Yes. And then there's a historical record that proves that he existed. So now the next ta tactic seems to shift into questioning his divinity. Well, he wasn't really the son of God. Mm -hmm. But then there's a, an opposite side that says, but, I mean, he's not that bad. He's, he's a pretty good dude. I like his his teachings and everything like that. Just not sure if I'm trying to get down with the fact that he was really the divine representative, the divine ambassador of the invisible God. Right. 
I'm like, okay, well, I'm kind of baffled on that one. Like, is it because you don't want him to be? Is it because you don't buy into the idea that there could be a divine ambassador at all? Because if you if you buy into the idea that there could be a divine ambassador, right? Mm-hmm. What would it take for you to identify him? Oh, that's a good point. Like, what are your thresholds? What are your metrics? Uh-huh. If you don't believe it at all, well, why? What's your rationale? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you look at the at the, at the Jesus historical figure and conclude he had to be a raging lunatic? Like, there's no way he could be God. Right. Like, if he wasn't, then all you have left is that he had to be a lunatic because he genuinely believed that he was. So could he back up what he said? Is it possible? <laughs> You know what I mean? There are all uh-huh. the there are all these different questions that have to come into play, and then you know a lot of people just seem to just dismiss it, like ah, oh, whatever, too much for me to think about. I'm like, no, you you have to consider this, right? And that's the only person that I I get a little bit irritated with is the dismissive one. Yeah. So I get the questions. I mean, you and I have spent hours and hours and hours of research on questions, books added, books taken away. You know, what can we actually? What do we actually know? What are we um, what are we putting together and that right. we, can, we can just rationally assume what things do we have to throw out completely? Like there is a lot of questions and there has been a lot of effort to distort this message. So I get the questions, ask the questions, send us emails. Let's talk at orppodcast.com. But what you can't do is just dismiss it and go, eh, eh, eh. Okay. So who, who, who is this? <laughs> Fluffy. Fluffy. Yeah, fl- you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Gabriel Iglesias. Yeah. So he he does this thing where he talks about how certain people from his culture have a single sound that they can make <laughs> that is the most dismissive, disrespectful thing that you could do. For some reason, Mexican people and only Mexican people have this sound that comes out of us that can just discredit anything you put in front of it. It doesn't matter what it is. We can kill it with that sound. Poppy, this is my fiance. He loves me. Ah. <laughs> That's what it feels like when you're talking to people about it. You know, okay, you got to decide. This is the most important thing you can talk about. What you decide to conclude about who Jesus Christ is determines more than just your future. It determines everything about you. Right. What? Don't you want to know? Ah. See, and we talked about the trivium, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And what we're not trying to do here at Operation Red Pill is convince people what to think, right? We're not? No. Okay. We're trying to show them how to think. Are we trying to do both? Mm, I don't know. Some people argue with me that they think I'm trying to convince them as to what to think. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But uh, I, I, I would agree with you that I think more... More than trying to to say what to think, because we do present information. Mm -hmm. And I, I for one, am a huge supporter of the idea that if you're provided information that you know is true, Mm -hmm. then you definitely should put that into your your purview of assessment on on reality. Right. And when we get that on easy things, right? So, like recipes or working on a vehicle, if I know that there's an easy way to do a job, I'm going to try to convince you, hey, this is the easier way to do the job. Right. And that's not offensive. Yeah, exactly. So if I know that I, that there's something true, I am giving that to you. I'm like, I think you should really think about it this way because it's it's true. Mm-hmm. But I'm not trying to think for you. 
Ooh, of not like trying that. to rob you of the ability or the responsibility to think through things for yourself. I like that. So it kind of seems to me that we do both here. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, cool. But we definitely want to to teach you how and not just say believe us. Right, because that's the thing that carries you through. Right. I remember growing up, I would ask my parents questions, specifically my mother. And I swear, drive her nuts. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, "Why? Okay, but why are we doing X, Y, and Z? Boy, <laughs> because I said so. I don't, you didn't grow up with a black mom. I did. I don't know if white moms do this, but black moms have this weird ability to talk through their teeth. Oh, yeah. White, white, white moms, moms do, do that, too. too. So it must just be a mom a thing. A mom thing, yeah. Uh, okay, cool. I was, I'm like, <laughs> hello, brother. I didn't know that you've already gone through this. That's awesome. They're a survivor of the talk through the teeth mom. Yep, yep. It's scary. Oh, my gosh. My mom was a ventriloquist, and she would tell me because I said so. Mm-hmm. When you just see, like, a lip quiver, right? but you hear voices, you're like, oh. Uh, Am uh, I crazy? Uh-uh, this is not good. <laughs> not good. One, one, maybe, Oh, man, she would do that. It, it, it was so aggravate me because I wanted to know why. Uh-huh. Like, I need to understand the psychology. I need to understand the rationale behind your train of thought so that when I'm presented with a similar situation and I cannot appeal to you personally because you're not there, I can at least rely on your system of evaluation to work my way through the problem and hopefully arrive at a suitable solution to it. That's the point of why you have to to get the whys behind things, right? And yeah. most people don't even care about that. Right. They just give me give me the answer, right? Exactly. And make it quick. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think one of the issues that we see, like where this idea of Jesus just being a good moral teacher, if, if we want to crack, crack the egg wide open, right? I think what it really comes down to is third-party investigation. Okay, how so? So there's a lot of people, and it's interesting. Uh, I, yeah, so Tim Ross has a, a podcast called The Basement, right? Okay. And there was a lady that came on a show, and she had a question. She was like, I'm really curious about this particular scripture, right? Okay. And I want to know what you think about it. So she kind of explained some of the context, some of the issues that she has conceptually with it. And then she, she, she tells him, and then he's like, okay, well, let's look at it. And she didn't even know what the scripture was. Like she, she knew about this scripture, but didn't know what it was. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be judgmental here, but how can you have questions and want to take questions up the ladder about something and you're not even sure about the thing? You know what I mean? Yeah. Seems like third party investigation. I got you. Because you just say, so I, I know, or I heard this thing about it instead of going and looking for it looking at it for yourself. And this happens so much when it comes to Christianity. Right. So like we, I mentioned the, the, um, the rapture. So often people look at the fact that Schofield, his reference Bible talks about a pre-trib rapture. Okay. And there's a lot of negativity around the Schofield reference Bible. Right. Right. And they go, okay, well, I don't see it being taught immediately before Schofield and Schofield brought it out and Schofield's bad. So pre-trib rapture must be bad. Okay. And I really don't think that we should divide over eschatology, but I'm, we might need to divide over how we investigate scripture because looking at a third party reference and going, Oh, well, because this dude said it and I'm not, I'm not seeing it around him. Then I, 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 
I, I take issue with it. I'm like, yeah, that's just, that's, that's lazy. I mean, it's similar to like if, if we would watch a movie today that was made in the 80s and we go, this is brand new because we don't actually want to look at where it came from. I mean, it's just foolish and it's lazy. Yeah, I would agree. It's also a logical fallacy that's being committed. What's the logical fallacy? Well, if you're, um, if you're dealing with somebody who espouses an idea, and let's say they're corrupt, mm-hmm. you decide to kill the idea because of the messenger. Uh, okay. Just because the messenger is corrupt does not make the actual message a lie. It's yeah. a possibility it could be, but it doesn't make it a lie de facto. Right. And that's yep. kind of the same idea. We, we, we've talked about this a little bit. Like, oh, you live at home. I can't take your input on real life issues. Or you don't have a child. Don't tell me how to raise them. That's dumb. You're not married, so you don't know what it's like. And I can't take any advice from you. That's ridiculous. A eunuch could tell me, don't shake your child. It's dangerous. And just because he doesn't have and can never have children doesn't mean that what he just told me was inaccurate. Uh, Christopher, I, I can't go I'm shake so a baby. I'm glad that I listened to the rest of your comment. <laughs> My mind, my listening apparatus cut off at shake. And I was like, what is the unit shaking? He has nothing to shake. I was so glad it was a baby. Because <laughs> I was really messed up there for a minute. Oh, that's funny. <clears throat> but no, so I really think that we have to go back to the text. If we have questions about the Bible, we, we need to look at the Bible. But, for yourself, first person. First person, but. There's a caveat here because I think the church makes this mistake and we've talked about it a lot, maybe not on this podcast yet, but the church goes, look, here's the inherent, inerrant word of God. It's important. It'll change your life. You're 12 years old. Here's 66 books. Go. Right. Uh-uh. That's, it is a thick book. There is some translational issues because- You need some, a guide. You need help. Yeah. Yes, you need someone to help you through it. So you have to look at it for yourself, but going in it blind on your own, not a wise idea. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I'm not saying people don't can't aren't able to sit down and go through the Bible and, and have the Holy Spirit actually show them different things on their own. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But I think as a system of study and a system of travel through Scripture, you really need someone that is versed in it to begin to show you and explain things. Right. And as that core knowledge builds, I think it it provides the capacity for a person to be able to do some self-study on their own. I would agree. That being said, uh, do I want to be this bold? I'll be this bold. I don't think that you should have, whether you believe in Jesus or not, I don't think that you should take a definitive stance on the Bible until you've done Chuck Missler's Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. It's pretty bold, man. Whether you're on board with it or you want to disregard it. That's a provocative statement. It is. That's a high bar. You potentially could be putting your foot in your mouth. The only problem is I happen to agree with you. Okay. I was getting nervous. I was like, whew, it's getting hot in the studio. <laughs> I say something wrong. Uh, you you were bold. Um, and I, I know certain people, they hear that, and just the title alone is a bit off-putting. It's a bit presumptuous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a kind of a tongue-in-cheek deal because it, it it doesn't take you verse by verse, word by word through Scripture. Right. It, it gives you sectional treatment and breaks that down into 24 courses. Right. So that you get a, a, a very 
broad but integrated understanding of the basic tenets of Scripture, right. which provides, I think, a pretty robust springboard for individual study. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it's 24 one-hour sessions. I will put the link in the show notes because we think it's that important. I mean, I I think if, you, if you're all about Jesus, yay, Jesus, let's go, son of God, I'm convinced, but you've not done the work to really have a in-depth, full-scope study of the Bible like Chuck Missler offers, and it's free on YouTube. In 24 hours, you can have a real handle on what we're talking about on this book that's been studied for thousands of years. If you believe in Jesus and don't know why, you're in trouble. If you don't believe in Jesus and you don't know why, you're in trouble. At the very least, if you're walking away from this podcast, we're just encouraging you. Absolutely know for sure why you've made the decision that you made because it's too important a thing to just let go out the window. Yeah, I second that. So that being said, quick reference on the the rapture. A lot of people argue Schofield can't do it. There's no such thing as a rapture anywhere in the Bible when in fact the word harpazo actually means just that, to be caught up. And even if we're wrong about end time stuff, we see that um, Enoch, right? Was it Enoch? There were a few, but Enoch's one. Enoch got raptured Mm -hmm. and so did Elijah. So we know that this thing is at least possible. So so throw in the baby out with the bathwater because you don't like Schofield. It's just, it's it's sloppy. But to, to really get in here, every single New Testament writer calls Jesus the Christ. Not Mr. Christ. Not Mr. Christ. It's not his last name. But, <laughs> but it's a specific title, and it's not one that's granted willy-nilly. Right. So bearing the title dictates that the bearer fulfills specific criteria laid down in the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. It's similar as, uh, uh, I don't know why this stuck out to me when I was doing the notes, but there's actually prerequisites that you have to have to serve as president. You'd not know that today. No, all of, all no, of our youngsters are going to think that anybody can just jump in and do it. No, you got to be at least 35. <laughs> have to be 35. You need to be a U.S. citizen. Uh-huh. I believe it used to be you had to be a natural born. Okay. I think they've amended that a bit. Yeah, I think you just have to be a resident for 14 years. Yeah, that was different because because that was one of the things that stopped Arnold Schwarzenegger from actually being able to run for president. He was a natural born. Okay. And but then he, one, I think one of your parents has to be uh, a U.S. citizen. Yeah, that's all new because when I was going through school, that was not the criteria, at least that last one. Right. It's shifting a little bit. I don't like that. I don't either. I mean, it seems like it's opening the door for other problems. Mm-hmm. It is. But... We'll stay on course here. We're talking about right, Jesus. Stay on course. <laughs> if you don't meet this criteria, then you can't even be um, considered to fill the role of president, right? Right. Same thing with Christ. There is criteria laid down thousands of years in advance that you can't even be considered as the Messiah unless you fulfill this criteria. Can we refine our language just a little bit? Sure. I think that what we're trying to say is you cannot be the biblical Messiah. Okay. And I think that's important because, and it took me a while. Uh, We were talking about going through Chuck Missler stuff. I was going through that. That helped me realize 
there will be other messiahs that other religious sects say is the messiah. Okay. Like it fulfills their requirements. That makes sense. But we're talking biblical. Yeah, which is important because even the the replacement Christ will fulfill certain messianic mandates. Interesting. Okay. And so we have to make sure that we are establishing very articulately what where our source of criterium stems from mm-hmm. and who that qualifies as a Messiah under whom's authority. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, cool. So uh, there's this quote by William Thompson. It says, until we measure a thing, we really know very little about it. Okay. I like that. Yeah. So I think we really have to measure Jesus of Nazareth using the roller stick, uh, the roller stick, using the measuring tape of prophecy. That's where we get biblical prophecy, biblical prophecy, because that's where we get this messianic biblical messianic criteria for who this person is supposed to be. Right. Okay. There's 300 prophecies about give or take. And we're going to go through every single one of them. Christopher. Buckle up. I I would love to do this. I don't quite have the time for 300. (laughs) If we could knock this back to like maybe 10. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. It is important to notice, to note, though, that we have sound documentation that the Hebrew scripture of the Old Testament was translated into Greek by 270 BC, right? Correct. And this is important because a lot of people take issue with, well, how can we trust the Bible? You know, it's been translated so many times and books were taken out and you know, the whole rigmarole. And, th- and right. there's, there's a good question. Ask, ask those questions. We'll answer them. We have an episode about why we believe the Bible. I'm certain we're going to do another one. Ask the questions. That's great. But here's what we do know. 270 years before Jesus Christ, of, Jesus of Nazareth was born, the entirety of Hebrew scripture was translated into Greek. They call it the... Uh, Septuagint. Septuagint. Yeah. It was 70 because 70 scholars endeavored. It wasn't just one dude like that got on his high horse and decided he wanted to translate it. 70 scholars got together and page by page, word by word, translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Right. So this would mean that even if we're unsure of the historicity or the timeline or anything before that, like maybe Daniel wasn't written when they say Daniel, maybe Genesis wasn't written. Maybe Job wasn't the oldest book. You know, all those questions kind of get wrapped up and come to a close in 270 BC because none of them are earlier than that. So at the very least, we have 300 prophecies detailing the coming Messiah, 270 years beyond anyone's lifetime before this individual that we say is the Messiah came onto the platform. Does that make sense? 270 years before Jesus showed up, solid documentation that, hey, if the Messiah is going to show up, he has to meet this criteria. Those are, for lack of a better word, set in stone, well-documented 270 years before he arrived. Got you. So, so we, we can rule out the, the manipulation that we just... That there were certain scribes that added this text and then subsequently over time right. kind of developed this story that uh-huh. Jesus just happens to fill these things. Right. Or they backfilled the story with information they learned from his life after his death. 
you know, those type of those type of accusations. Right. No, you can't have that when you have copies of the Septuagint in existence almost three centuries before he showed up. Right. Because you would have to gather all of those copies, sit down, make all of the corrective changes to each copy so that everything maintained a consistency and continuity across the spectrum. Right. We don't see that. True. True. So what are some of them? So these are just some that are actually quoted in the Gospels. So we have 270 years before Jesus showed up. We know that they were written down. And these are just some of the ones that we get reiterated in the Gospels after the fact, right? That they go and look, he actually fit this criteria. This is why we call him Christ. This is why we believe in him. Right. So we have, he was to be of David's family. He was to be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would sojourn in Egypt. He would live in Galilee, in Nazareth. He would be uh, announced by an Elijah-like herald. He would occasion a massacre of Bethlehem's children. So right after he was born, there was a massacre in Bethlehem, and that's that's why he ended up going to Egypt. Uh, Would proclaim a jubilee in the world. His mission would include the Gentiles. Ministry would be one of healing. He would teach through parables. He would be disbelieved and rejected by the rulers. He would make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. $7.50, depending on how you're counting it. Well, no, if you take 30 pieces of silver, that's 30 pieces of of 30 quarters. Quarters. Yes, it is. It's 30 quarters. $7.50. That's it. That's what he got betrayed for. Seven fifty. That's right. It's one of the ways I know Jesus was part of Melanin Rich. They, he, they caught him on sale for the betrayal. It was the worst. On sale. Blue light special. I hear. Get your Jesus. Get your Jesus for seven fifty, baby. That's funny. That's hilarious. Oh, jeez. Uh, he would be. It would be like a shepherd. I can't even. Continue. <laughs> That person's like, wait a minute, where did you get seven fifty? Thirty quarters. It's thirty pieces of silver. That's the only silver piece I know is a quarter. So I did the math for you. Thank okay? you. I, I appreciate that. I'm I'm glad that the record button doesn't affect math at all. Oh no, no, not at all. That's seven fifty, baby. Seven fifty. All right. So he'd be smitten like a shepherd, be given vinegar and gall. They would cast lots for his garments, his side would be pierced, not a bone would be broken. He would die among malefactors. His dying words were foretold. He would be uh, buried by a rich man, and he would raise again on the third day. Okay, you said there are 300 prophecies, There's 300. I didn't read 300 of them. No, what did you read? Like 15, Uh, 20, something like that? Maybe. Yeah. That's a lot of specificity. It is a lot. Do you realize that with seven pieces of information— you can get a letter to a particular person, any person on this planet with seven pieces of information that differentiate us from anyone else. Seven, seven bits. That's it. What are they? Name, street address, street, or yeah, your house number, street name, uh, city, state. Actually, it'd be... And your zip, so it'd be six, not seven. Okay. Yeah, six pieces of information. And Jesus has three hundred. Think about that. Yeah, six bits of information can get a message 
distinct dis, distinctly to you individually, even if you have the same name or a similar name as someone. Mm-hmm. Like it'll it'll still differentiate between the two. Right. He's got three hundred bits. Uh huh. I think that's why Chuck says that he's. When Chuck was living, he said that he has more reason to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God than he does to believe that he is Chuck Missler. I got you. Now, that doesn't mean that I believe more that Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm actually doubting who I am. That's kind I, of the way I took it when Chuck said it, uh-huh. but I get what you're saying. There's it, it, more information right. that that elu- that uh brings about a higher degree of specificity mm-hmm. as to Jesus' identity than we get for ourselves, and we don't even question our identity. Right. That's that's dope. So I want to get into a couple prophecies that I would be take exception to that I really have a high level of appreciation for. No, because if you took exception to it, you'd have an issue with it. Okay, I don't have an issue with it. Okay. I'm bringing it up because I think it's super dope. Got you. So one of them is uh, his triumphant entry, right? One of the ones I just read is that he would, uh, let's see, where is it? He would make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? Okay. That's foretold. The details, though, are missed if you're just listing the prophecies, right? Right, because you say that, I was like, big whoop. Yeah. (laughs) This is great. So even, again, if we don't know for sure when Daniel was written, because it was really about a 1,000 years before Christ was born. Okay. If you don't want to believe that, let's just fast forward it up three centuries before he was born. Okay. Still incredible, because there's this record of prophecy that there would be one... 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree by Artaxerxes on March 14th, 445 BC to the day the Messiah, the Christ would present himself King, right? Okay. This is documented, translated by at least 70 scholars, three centuries before Jesus was born. So what happened April 6th, 32 AD? It's what we call Palm Sunday. Jesus of Nazareth, that would be Jesus the Christ, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was historically the, the steed of the king, right? Mm-hmm. So he's presenting himself as king. Okay. With the, without missing a day, 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree by Artaxerxes to the time that the biblical Messiah was going to present himself king, And just randomly, this dude, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey the same way that kings traveled and rode into towns presenting themselves in that authoritative position on the exact day that was recorded. Minimum of 300 years before the dude was born. Come on. That's, what's that thing that that Vody Bauckham says? Amen, somebody. (laughs) Amen, somebody. Yeah. Like, that's dope, right? Yeah, that is a lot to to wrap your mind around for a lot of different reasons. Okay. Well, take take into account just the conversations we've had about what constitutes a day, especially from a celestial perspective. Okay. Because we're used to solar solar days, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever constitutes a day, 24 hours, they've calculated from heaven. That 1,773, 880 of them are going to transpire. 173,880. What did I say, 1,000? Yeah. I'm sorry, 173,880. Days are going to transpire before this thing occurs, Mm -hmm. right? 
which means somebody would have had to look across time in order to know that. Right. Which is a whole nother issue. Uh huh. And then you deliver this. And this is such a pivotal, a pivotal prophecy that Jesus held Jerusalem accountable. He held Israel accountable for knowing the, t- the season of his arrival. And because they didn't, he allowed, this is what, what warranted their destruction. Right. Like there was no joking about this. Like if you didn't think that I was the, the Messiah, forget the other 300 prophecies. Mm-hmm. Just this one is accurate enough to let you know who I am. Do you see anybody else <laughs> on this day riding in on a Ford donkey? <laughs> That's what I think about Ford. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Are we going to have to pause, ladies and gentlemen? You didn't catch that. <laughs> no, I did not catch that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, nobody else is riding in on a Ford donkey except me, and you still didn't know who I was? Oh, that's funny. Yo, that's wild, isn't it? It is. Absolutely mind-blowing. I think it's also why Paul tells us that we have the more sure word of prophecy. Right. And it's interesting because we had this conversation, like if the if the false Messiah is going to show up and he's going to perform miracles, he's going to be able to do supernatural things, whether he's a transhuman, whether he's an alien, you know, whatever, whatever those dynamics are, he's going to have what looks like supernatural ability. How are we going to know it's not the Messiah of the Bible, right? Yo, I mean, that's a really scary question. Yeah. When you really start dissecting that and looking at the implications. Mm-hmm. Right. He's not going to sound satanic. Right. He's going to sound very much so religious. Uh huh. He's going to sound nice. He's going to come up with complex solutions. So he's going to have a certain amount of wisdom and savviness about him. Where you're like, man, that, that was just that was just a dope solution. Who would ever thought to do that? Right. Like, that has to be a divine solution. Yeah. And he's going to deliver it in, in a tone. He's going to deliver it in rhetoric. That just inspires us, right? Yeah. It's going to check all these boxes. How will you know? Because we have the more sure word of prophecy. And what does that mean? It's interesting that when Paul makes this statement, he's talking to eyewitnesses, right? Mm-hmm. Talking to people that actually saw Jesus, saw him perform miracles, and saw him after they put him in the grave. And he says, more sure word of prophecy. Because despite what you might think you see, you can be deceived, right? Correct. Nobody else can show up 173,880 days from the decree of Artaxerxes, present himself king in this particular position. That's That's unchanged. That was set down before. It's just like the hacker group Anonymous. Not just like, but similar to. Whenever they're... I really haven't heard anything about him recently. So but, wait, you're telling me that Jesus couldn't sit there 32 years old, 33, 33 years old, actually, and uh, do some calculation, be in there looking at the scrolls, right? Mm-hmm. Read this prophecy, get out his scratch pad and slide rule and do some quick calculations and figure out, oh, snap, we about three days away. From this whole thing getting kicked off, let me go grab me a donkey and ride up in here triumphant and victorious. You know what? That's fair. 
That that could have actually been a thing. Okay. B- but if you th- if you think that it's if you hold to the prophecy as being true, one thing he'd have to be concerned about is if the real dude shows up. Okay, fair enough. That, that would be one thing. Fair enough. But yeah, I guess you're right. He could fake it. But th- this is just one. Exactly. This is just one. The probability that he could fake all 300 of them. Right. Is impossible. The fact that he would even fulfill enough to be eligible for this one. To be born at the right time, to be born in Nazareth, to sojourn in Egypt, to have a massacre of children happen, you know, right, r- right, right at that time. He's not in control of all of that. So he's got to meet a lot of criteria before this, this day even shows up. Okay. And, and yeah, 300, not just one. It's just the accuracy of this one is, is a little bit staggering right. for me. But it's not my favorite. Okay. You can let me in on a little secret. What is your favorite messianic prophecy? Right now, it is uh, Psalm 22. Okay, why that song? Okay, lots of reasons, but it boils down to one section that just, it just baffles my mind. I think it puts Jesus in the running. It's beyond his ability as a human man, and it's done ruining the game for anybody after. Okay, what was that? Well, first, let's just talk about Psalm 22. We've got to lay the context a little bit. So Psalm 22 was written, I think, by David, right? Fairly yeah. certain it was written by David. So it's written by David, but it actually reads as a firsthand account. Sounds like Jesus on the cross. In fact, the first line in Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. That's a little weird. It is. And it's interesting because Vodi Baca makes the point that the way they recognized Psalms back in the day was by the first line. They would just take the first line of the Psalm and that would be the title. And you would know, you wouldn't say Psalm 22. You would say the uh, Psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when Jesus Hmm. says this on the cross, he's intentionally triggering the minds of the Jews to say, look at this Psalm. I might not have the actual breath to say this, but look, this is written before time. So you mean while he is while he is in the midst of dying from an unjustified execution, he is still getting divine business taken care of before all things is wrapped up? Oh yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Cause I'm not helping nobody else after I done got nails put through <laughs> my body. Y'all on your own. Right. Right. Y'all stood up here and let these people nail me, no pun intended, nobody help. Nobody came to my rescue. And who in the hell is carrying around vinegar and gall? (laughs) Like this is some beverage to sip on. Right. This is what y'all going to give me. You know what? All y'all are putting. Oh, yes. Denzel Washington in the house on on Calvary. I'm putting cases on all you Jews. This was happening. (laughs) That's funny. Sandal program, son. (laughs) Strike Sam Ballot. 23-hour lockdown in a Roman Legion prison. You'll never see the light. You think you can do this to me? Yeah, that would be you. I tried to think of a Roman god. Zeus ain't got nothing on me. That's funny. Peter, Peter, bring me the money, Peter. (laughs) Okay, man, I think I'm getting sleepy because I just took training day. And smashed it together with scripture. That (laughs) is crazy. That's dangerous. That is. That's bad, man. You should should keep talking. 
So Psalm 22, it goes on and really gives a firsthand account, like the piercing of the hands, the distress, casting lots for his clothes, like it, detail, detail, way before, at least most conservative, is that 270 years before he was born. Okay, I remember when Chuck did, when Chuck went over this, uh-huh. and I was a little shaken up, but what really got me was when it talked about, I see the bulls of Bashan encircling me. Uh-huh. Right? I was like, it's a spiritual reference. Right. I thought, for instance, it was like the running of the bulls in Spain. I was like, why do you have... First, <laughs> I didn't know they had bulls in Jerusalem. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Why are they around you? This doesn't seem like a place that would be bull-friendly. Right. Right. You're, you're, you're getting executed. <laughs> like, it, it messed with my whole perception. But then when he explained that, no, the bulls are, are a spiritual idiom indicating demons that are actually encircling the cross mm-hmm. and rejoicing and coming from Bashan, which is actually a, a, a region located in Mount Hermon area. Right. That's saying a lot. Like uh-huh. that is a loaded statement. And I was like, you see that first person who wrote this? Right. And I go back and read this, David. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. This is crazy. This is absolutely mind blowing. Uh-huh. Yeah, if, if you're at all interested, go back, read Psalm 22 with the idea that it's the first person account from Jesus on the cross. Blow your mind. But here's the part, here's my favorite part. Okay. And you, you've got to understand that, that I found this hat from Art of Homage, right? From what? The uh, site that sells Christian attire, okay. Art, Art of Homage. And it has, it's, it's a nice black and purple hat which may or may not fit the color scheme of a particular uniform that has to be worn to make money, right? Okay. And I was like, ah, I can slide this right in and nobody's going to notice. I think it's cool. And it's, I've been wearing it for a while and people have been asking, hey, what's your hat? Me, oh, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. So people notice? Yeah. <laughs> your theory was wrong. Well, it was, but it, it's not one that like corporate's going to see it and they'll go, oh, well, that's not uniform. But. Yeah, you're out, of, you're out of uniform. I got you. Right, right. But it it's, it's subtly sneaks in. And I mean, the people that ask me have been looking at my mug for weeks, right? Okay. And they're like, wait a minute. That's, that's not, that's not, hat. Well, what's that mean? So I've been telling people for a while, I'm like, oh, it's the, it's the unpronounceable name of God, right? Okay. Yav, hey, vav, hey. And I, I do that little iteration and I'm like, that doesn't, that doesn't do it justice. I need something else, right? Okay. So it was kind of bothering me. And then I just kept hearing this section of, of Psalm 22. And I was like, oh, oh, this is where it's at. Because the, the, the name of the God that I had on my hat in Ohio, in America, in, in 2022, represents the specific creator deity of the Israelites of old, right? Okay. Completely other land that I've never even been. Right. In this section of Psalm 22, it's Psalm 22, 27 through 28. And after it explains all the things that are going to happen to Jesus on the cross, it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all of the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Wow. There are today families and people of every nation on the planet that have turned and believe in the God of Israel. And okay, that might not sound like a crazy thing, 
But this, this, is, this implies that what happened to a broke nobody and a small province that was governed by Rome, right? Mm-hmm. Like just a, a, a footnote, not even worth Roman effort, right? It's right. just this itty-bitty spot. And this poor dude that's there that makes some weird heresies of a religion that Rome does not care about at all. They're just like, shut up about it. We don't care. Right. This dude gets crucified, and because what happened to this poor dude to a land that no one's heard of, people all over the world are going to worship the God of that itty-bitty nation. Right. That's something. That is. And nobody can come after, because it's done. Right. There are already people of every nation that believe in the creator God of the Bible. It's so whoever the Messiah is has got to be here already, and I don't think anyone else in the world can take credit for the spreading of this message other than Jesus Christ Himself. All right, man, that's a dope point. Yeah, that's why at least right now this particular prophecy, this one of three hundred, that one speaks to me. I like that. So Chuck does a little bit of the probability. Which always blows my mind. He's good with numbers. He's an information science wizard, if we can use that term. All right. So he he goes through a couple renditions and uh, explains that like if we just take eight prophecies, and he runs, you know, born in Bethlehem, uh, king brought in on a donkey, thirty pieces of silver. Uh, temple in the potter, wounds in his hands, uh, no defense. Uh, he's an innocent man that makes no defense for himself, uh, died with the wicked, grave of the rich, and crucified. Just just a handful. He gives a, uh, a very brief, very broad, very um, conservative idea on the, the likelihood of someone fulfilling those. Well, now I have these eight prophecies, born in Bethlehem, king of donkey, et cetera, et cetera, these eight prophecies. This, in effect, the composite probability... Of, these eight, of one person fulfilling these eight prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 28th, 10 with 28 zeros after. That's a pretty big number. But if you're going to be precise, you say, by the way, you should divide that by the total population during the last 2,000 years, whatever. And I'm going to say, I'm just going to stipulate that let's just use 100 billion as a horseback estimate. And you just divide by subtracting exponents. That's 10 to the 17th. Now, if I was in a statistics class here, the way you try to get a feeling for, say, one chance in 100, we typically take a bucket. And let's say we put 100 silver dollars in there. I take one of the silver dollars and I mark it with someone's lipstick or, or nail polish or something and put it in there, and we mix it all up. 99 unmarked ones, one mark. We mix it all up. The chance of my reaching in there and getting the one we marked is one chance in 100. That's a way of conveying what we mean by saying one in a hundred. You with me? Well, here I've got a situation where I've got 10 to the 17th. So what I need to do is get a bucket and put 10 to the 17th silver dollars in there. That turns out to be a pretty big bucket. In fact, I need a bucket that'll have 10 to the 17th silver dollars, and what I need is the state of Texas. And I fill it with silver dollars, it'll turn out to be two feet deep. 10 to the 17th is a big number. The chance of one person fulfilling those eight prophecies is equivalent to my marking one of those silver dollars in Texas, two feet deep, 
mixing them up in such a way that it could be anywhere, reaching down blindfolded and picking up one and picking up the one that's marked is one chance in 10 to the 17th. That obviously is pretty unlikely. <laughs> but I've only used eight prophecies. I have 300 prophecies to choose from. So bear with me one more time. But beyond chance, right? So we have these prophecies, more sure word prophecy and all of that, and chances and yabbity, 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 right? Right. What did Jesus actually think about himself? That's like super important. It is. And it's interesting because lots of people were coming after the fact and going, Jesus never said that he was God. I'm like, so what do you think he got murdered for? Right. Like, it's it's so like simple. Like, for being such a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, if he's just a hippie, he's, just a, he's wearing a ring that says E-L-E. Right. And they kill him for it? That that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, they could be strict on some of these religious laws, but yeah, I don't think that's what happened. Right. So we got to know, was Jesus aware of who he was. I think he was, it's, it's, it's easy, but there, there's some, there's some tips and some tidbits and there's some good stuff here. So it's interesting if, if you want to know what Jesus says about himself, I think the pinnacle, and we got to go back to Chuck Missler again. Like he, he did good work, but there's a book called I Jesus. I was thinking about that. And they call it I Jesus an autobiography because they take and give a, a very, very detailed outline of who Jesus is based only by what Jesus says about himself. And it's, it's good. It is. It is. It's, it's it a is phenomenal a book. book because it really, for, here's one of the things though. It, it's a little uncomfortable because I think one of the things that it does is it, it reveals a person's illiteracy with scripture. Okay. Because if you really don't know that Jesus said this, you're like, wait, wh what happened? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And a lot of us, like you were saying a moment ago, if you suffer from third-party investigation and you haven't done the first, you know, first-hand investigation for yourself, mm -hmm. then you probably really don't know what Jesus said about himself. Right. Which is weird, because then I'm like, well, what are you supporting? Yeah, that's interesting. Right? You you have to make certain aff affirmative statements about the identity of Christ yeah, for yourself. And even making the statement that he never calls himself God means that you are claiming to be familiar with all the statements that he's made, right? To know that none of them yeah. say that he is God. That, that's a pretty presumptuous statement. I mean, it's okay. If you're familiar with what's recorded in scripture, then you're on solid ground as long as you're right. Right. But if you're not, whoo. Yeah. Heaven smile upon you, as my dad would say. <laughs> so one thing I think is, is super interesting is that one of Jesus's favorite terms for himself in the Gospels is son of man. Okay, see, that always annoyed me. <laughs> but that's where a lot of people would um, interject and go, well, if he really thought he was God, why'd he keep calling himself son of man? It's like 82 times, 82 different times calls himself son of man. He can't be God. He's a son of man. Come on now. I'm like, I'm a son of man. Yeah. He's no different than me. Right. That's why it annoyed me. I'm like, why don't you call yourself HGIC? Like, <laughs> what's going on, man? Yeah. Like, why even tell people what your name is? Just smack them around a little bit. Let them know who you are. Actions speak louder than words anyway. Ask Samuel Jackson. Yeah. 
You know, why don't you yell it that way? <laughs> you know, flap your coat. You're the wolf. Right. That's all you had to say. That's it. <laughs> say it with a little bit of thunder. Or like Kevin Hart says, say it with your chest. But that's all you that's all you gotta do. That's all you gotta do. That's funny. First thing we have to look at is the fact that war doctrine, which is the Bible, tells us that Jesus was so humble even as God. And it's easy, I think it's probably pretty easy to be humble when you know you're God, right? Mm, I'm not sure how humble I would be if I was God. Well, but you got nothing to prove. Like you you really are God. So I know I'm God, <laughs> but you're about to learn that I'm God. That's funny. And after we have, like Delarice mm. said, after we have this conversation, I don't want no hard feelings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, see, I wouldn't you, be a good guy. Me either, because I I am right there with you. I was like, you know what? It would it would not be easy for me to be God. But no, lot- oh yeah, I mean, you know, Jason, are you God? Well, some have said that I am. <laughs> what say ye? I think too often, though, when we consider what it would be like to be God, we take his power without his character. You know, I think you're spot on because that's all I've got running through my head right now. Right. I apply my character to that level of power and oh boy, are we in trouble. Right. Because all I've got is Disney running through my head right now. Phenomenal cosmic powers. Itty bitty living space. (laughs) (laughs) What are we like five right now? Uh, you know what? I don't think that Disney has any brainwashing capabilities. What they don't implant ideas or anything like that. No, no, they don't function in or traffic in in psychological molding protocols that have a proven track record to stay with you for decades. Right. No, I just chose to pick this particular phrase out of a movie I haven't seen for years and apply it to the character and power of the Almighty God. Haphazardly. Yeah. It's just something we like to do on a Sunday night. Right. Right. (laughs) But no, the Bible actually says that Jesus himself didn't think it'd be a point to boast about the fact that he was God. So whether we understand that character or not, the only thing that makes sense to me is that when you when you are that high, you don't have to prove it to anybody. You see somebody right now. Jesus, are you God? And about 2,017 years from now, a song is going to come out by some person named Jigga. Uh, gee, what'd you say? Listen, get your consonants correct. <laughs> I said Jigga. And he's going to brush some dirt off his shoulder. That's the song I need playing right now when you ask me who I am. So stand by. There will be a soundtrack coming to answer your question. Like, if I was God, that is exactly how I would be. Yeah. Are you God? (laughs) Shoot. If I ain't, what am I? (laughs) You would be a terrifying God. (laughs) I I would not. That button is way too much fun. <laughs> it really is. I got to stop doing that, but it's so great. Oh, that's amazing. So yeah, anyway, Bible says Jesus didn't consider it, uh, didn't consider the fact that he was God a point to boast about. Second, God being a human is really a pivotal point on which the gospel hinges. Not only that, it's a super, super crucial spiritual issue. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so God spends all this time separating kinds and punishes 
any being that decides to violate kinds, mm -hmm. like like the separation between different distinct life forms. Right. He takes on humanity, doesn't violate his laws, actually becomes a human being, incarnates himself, right? Puts on flesh. Uh-huh. And this is one of the things that the the angels wanted to do. They wanted to extend themselves into our reality. Right. By right? violating divine law. Exactly. Even Satan is probably going to try that. Mm-hmm. He's going to try to incarnate himself. Right. And yet Jesus is doing that. It's a big, big deal. Right. And we, we talked about this a little bit in the show we did with Ghost. But the fact that the, the thing that Jesus brings to us, right, is, is resolving that, I don't know if you want to talk about energy or vibrational dissonance that happened when sin entered the world, right? Right. That when Adam, he was like, look, as soon as you eat this, you're going to die, which as we talked about in past episodes is death is really separation. You are going to get separated from me. That's the death that I'm talking about. Eventually your body's going to die too, but immediately you're going to get separated from me. So that one of the things that Jesus offers is talking about Jesus. You're right here. I'm not going to be separated from you. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Where, where'd you go? Where'd you, will you stop disappearing? <laughs> but no. So our, our, the blood, our blood works like a, a Tesla step up coil, right? Right. Transmitting and receiving energy. The thing that Jesus offers because he became man. And if we have even the slightest understanding of like quantum entanglement, right? This is one way that Jesus's actions quantumly entangled to the blood of all men offers access to change, epigenetics and quantum entanglement that shifts the energetic or vibrational frequency to make it more in line with that of Jesus Christ and that of God. So we're more in tune, literally like tuning forks, attenuates our DNA to, in such a way that changes our interaction with the world and him. And that's crazy. It, so Jesus being the son of man is so much more than just this idea of a God looking like a human. Because our view of that kind of gets colored by the Greco-Roman idea, right? Mm -hmm. Zeus takes on the form of man, has sex with some people, you know. Pops sent, back into animal form, flies right, off. no big deal. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a, a, a real issue. And, and, and we even have angels that appear to be human-like, right? Right. But this is actually Jesus becoming a human being, 100% God, 100% human, which is why the whole uh, communion thing, do this in remembrance of me, partake in the blood, because he's talking about the, the quantum mechanics of uh, an attenuation into the spirit realm. Like they didn't have the, the words for that then, but we know now with the advances in technology, this is exactly what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's why son of man was his favorite term for, for himself because it, it encapsulated in the one title everything that he was was sent to do. You know, dude, you, you don't know this, but this week I asked one of my friends, I was actually talking with him, and I, I said, it's weird. Like, I don't understand why one of Jesus' favorite phrases was son of man. Like, it seems the, like the most stupidest title that you could take on when you're the great I am. Great Ham is probably the second most irritating title. <laughs> okay. 
right? But I mean, you are sovereign. You're most high. You you are the creme de la creme. Why would you take something like uh, son of man? Like I'm a son of man. You're a son of man. It's not that distinctive to me. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I was like, I don't have an answer. It's just, just something I wonder about from time to time. Uh-huh. I was like, Holy Spirit, uh, will you give me an answer to this? Because I, I, I don't know. <laughs> All right. So going over the show notes, dude, when I saw this a few moments before we started recording, I'm like, you have to be kidding me. This is literally the question I asked this week and forgot about. That's dope. I don't know if you were going through anything or feeling anything at the point that you were writing this, but yeah, it's crazy. That that's the exact answer to the question that I asked this week. That's nuts. Yeah. I, I remember when I was doing this, I'm like, why am I hitting this so hard? Like this son of man thing. Cause I didn't so much care about it, but as I'm putting the notes together, I was like, this seems important. This seems, this seems like something I need to, to drive home. That's crazy that you would that you had made that Isn't it request of the Holy Spirit. Like it really makes me think maybe I should really take more questions out. You're gonna have more writing assignments. That, that's just gonna happen. But I'm gonna think, wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I don't know why I'm making notes about this. <laughs> I want to see my watch go off. Bing. Thank you. Stop asking the Holy Spirit for stuff. I haven't had sleep in three weeks. Oh, you'll be fine. You're young. So the meaning of life, Lord. Uh 40. Too. <laughs> that's hilarious but that's really cool to see to to find out that god listens all the way down to our questions mm-hmm. and actually will will work out answers to those questions to give back to you yeah and it's cool that this is kind of the, the more sensitive piece that we can be used as answers to other people's questions yeah that's cool because I never would have guessed writing this that it was answering a specific question that you would ask God about. Right. And there are times where I've brought information to people and they're like, that's exactly what I was wondering. And I'm like, I didn't know that. Right. I, know I, I remember where I even got the information that I'm giving and it didn't mean that much to me. Like, it kind of makes me think maybe we should take more care about the mundane things in life when you serve a sovereign God who doesn't do anything coincidentally or by happenstance. I would agree. It's something to toy around with in the noggin. I like that. Thank you, sir. Yep. Moving on. Jesus ties this title, uh, Son of Man, to his divinity. And I think Mark Middleberg in his book, uh, Questions Christians Hope No One Asks, right? I'm pretty sure that's the title. Yes. It's kind of a lengthy title, and I'm always afraid I'm I'm mixing the words up, you know? No, that that sounded correct. It's close. If not, we'll put it in the show notes. You can look there and... And see whether or not I'm accurate. But he says in Mark chapter 14, during his trial prior to the crucifixion, Jesus used this title for himself and specifically tied it to the passage in Daniel 7. He was answering a question of the high priest. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? To this, Jesus replied, I am. And you will see the son of man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. These words were astonishing to the astute listeners because by coupling the title son of man with the description of his coming on the clouds of heaven, he was undeniably claiming that he was the divine person described in Daniel 7:13, where it says, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. The group's response said it all. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, why do we need any other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. 
he deserves to die. So this, if you're really looking at, at how this stuff played out and, and, and reading about Jesus, how can, how can you think that, that he wasn't claiming to be God? Right. Now, he doesn't specifically say, I am God, but that, that wouldn't have meant anything because he's dealing with a, a Roman-occupied um, province, right? So I am God could have been Zeus, you know, could have been Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, like just that blatant outright thing that the Western ears want to hear would not have made sense in that day and age. And, and Chuck Missler gives us this really, really cool tool that I've used over and over when I, when I go back and, and read the New Testament. Okay, what's that? He said that, I mean, he, he talks a lot about the, the craftiness of the way the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. By holography, you know, one of the things is that you don't get um, a chapter on baptism. You don't get a chapter on... Uh, I got triggered when Chuck was talking about this because this bothered me growing up. <laughs> You know, that like, kid, why isn't there just a chapter I can go to? Yeah, because right? I'm a very topical reader. Okay. So if I want to know about baptism, where's the section? And you go to the back of the Bible and there'd be like four or five different, uh -huh. you know, places. And I'm like, this doesn't help. <laughs> like nobody thought to comprise this into one section. What's wrong? Well, the reason they did it is because, like I said, Chuck Missler used to be an information technology master, right? Mm -hmm. He said that this actually anticipates hostile jamming. Okay. When you use hol holography to write it. It's similar to the way that holograms are designed. Okay. That you, one thing you have to do is you have to use this, the same light or medium at which it was written in order to read it. Otherwise, the image gets distorted. Okay. But the other thing is the information is spread across the whole face of the medium as well. So one example that I like to use is somewhat shamefully, me and my brother used to rip a bunch of DVDs. We used to rent them, rip them, put them on a hard drive. And Nathan being way smarter than I am, he's like, well, how do you want to do this? And I was like, I want to put the disc in here and I, and I want it to be over there when we're done. And he's like, that's not what I'm talking about. We had like four or five different hard drives. And he said, here's how we can do it. We can put 200 movies on this hard drive, 200 movies on this hard drive, and 200 movies on this hard drive. And he's like, but if one crashes, we lose all 200 movies. He's like, we can do this other thing. It's going to be a little bit more work to set it up. But we can have all 600 movies written across all the hard drives. Is that like a RAID setup? I'm not sure what it's called, but it's okay. the same type of uh, holography that, that Missler talks about. The, and, and the reason you do it is because if you're anticipating a hard drive failure, right? Yeah. Or you're anticipating what Chuck called hostile jamming, which is where people would go in and take things out of the Bible uh -huh. because that's claimed a lot. This way of spreading the message across the whole length of it ensures that the message never disappears. Now you lose quality a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like you might be watching at 720 instead of 1080. Right. But you're not going to lose the whole thing. And that's why the Bible is written like it is. Yeah, when Chuck explained this, it also made me angry. Why? Because I had to humble myself and go back and be like, okay, guys, you're not an idiot. You do know how to write the Bible. I guess I just didn't know what you were trying to do. <laughs> and 
I hope that there aren't any other areas in my life where that would apply to because I still have you on trial. <laughs> but in this particular case, you stand vindicated. And I'll see you tomorrow because office hours are over right now. I'm going to go back. <laughs> That's funny. But no, I think it's really beneficial, especially because we have a lot of friends that are questioning like authenticity of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And people really did try to take stuff out. And that's nothing new. Like if you look in in the Corinthians, I think there's what first and second Corinthians is what we have. But in those letters, there's references to at least two other letters. Mm-hmm. So we know that there's at least two missing letters. But the beauty of it, even if there are things that were taken out or maybe some things that were intentionally mistranslated, one, we can go back and look at the original uh, text and double-check translation for ourselves. The other thing is because the Bible was written like this, with the message spread across the whole thing, then we can lose a book and and not lose the whole message. Now, we might have to do a little bit more work Mm -hmm. because the resolution isn't so good, but the message isn't lost. So that, I think, is is really cool. But the, the tool that Chuck gives us for this particular instance is way simpler than all that. Okay, what's that? The religious leaders of the time, probably, I think if we could humble ourselves, they were more schooled in the particular dynamics of their religion than we are a couple thousand years later, right? Okay. So when Jesus says things or things happen that we don't care about, right? Like maybe walking through a field and picking some grain, maybe doing a miracle on the Sabbath, maybe the things that he said in the midst of this trial, So what if he says he's the son of man and he's doing something with some clouds, it just means he's smoking, right? Like we just, we, we we don't, we don't, we don't understand it. That escalated quickly. (laughs) But if we recognize the understanding of the religious leaders and when they get enraged, when they throw a fit about something that's going on, then we can go, oh, they better understand the context and the dynamic of what they're dealing with. So if they think that it's heresy, if they're freaking out about something, maybe we could we could look closer at this because there's something, uh, there's a little nugget in there. Okay. So that's that's exactly what Middleburg was saying. You know, the things that Jesus combined the term son of man with the description of God and Daniel, they knew that. That's why they tore their clothes. That, we, we don't even need any more witnesses. He just said himself that he is God. Let's kill him. <laughs> you know, it's funny, man. There's it's actually several occasions that Jesus, in so many words, claims divinity. Right? Uh-huh. Like one of the ones that really pissed the Sadducees, or the Pharisees, rather, off was the fact that he forgave sin. And he did it on the Sabbath. It was like one of the times they asked him, by whose authority do you do this? And he was like, well, by whose authority do you do X, Y, and Z? And they're like, oh, snap. If we answer this way, we're trapped. And if we answer that way, we're trapped. And he's like, well, then neither am I going to tell you by whose authority I forgive this. Yeah. But then you're like, wait a minute. You don't have, the only person who has the authority to forgive sins is God. And he's got looking at him like, bingo. Right. Like, where's your, where's your light bulb? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, a direct statement. To his divinity. Right. Not to mention the fact that the miracles were also designed to prove his divinity. Yes. So it's a really naive at best, and, and probably not to be offensive, but an ignorant position at worst, uh, woefully ignorant, to suggest that Jesus never claimed his divinity. Right. 
And if, and if that's the case, then you got to wonder how much of a good moral teacher he is if he claimed to be God and wasn't. Right. That would invalidate the, the good moral teacher, and he should push it, push it all off the cliff. Right. It's interesting. We're, yeah. build, we're building a case here. Right. I'm with you. All right. So moving on to the, the uh, crucifixion. Th- this is debated. Because there are a lot of people that go, okay, I know Jesus was real. There are the crazy ones that are like, well, we don't even know if Jesus was a real person. We're past that. We, re- we really are. But was he really crucified? You know, did he really die? Did he really raise from the dead? Th- those are important, important questions to ask. Right. And Christianity is a knowledge-based religion. Unfortunately, the church in America, the Western church, stands, to borrow a quote from Jurassic Park, stands on the shoulders of geniuses. Okay. And takes for granted all the hard work that was put in. Just because what's happening is in Jurassic Park, Ian Malcolm is accusing the scientist that stood on the shoulders of everyone that did the work before them. And they're like, hey, we can just do this and we can, we can, you know, create genetic monstrosities without any care of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that's very similar to the, the American church, the American Christian really takes for granted the, the thousands of years of hard scholarship, hard historical um, investigation that went in to give us the sound um, commentaries, the sound historical backing, the, I mean, everything that, that makes Christian Christianity, that makes the Bible, that makes Jesus valid today, there was hard sweat, blood, tears. There was real work that went in. And we just go, eh, I believe it or I don't believe it. Right. You know, we really are knowledge-based believers and we we take it for granted. Because Paul even tells us, look, if if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all this goes out the window. If this didn't actually happen, then we need to forget about it. Right. And so much of just believe, you know, just, just give it a chance. No, convince me. Because we can, we have the tools. We have thousands of years and hundreds and thousands of people that have put the work in to, to, to justify and rationalize and make this thing real. We can't. We need to not take that for granted, and we need to use that because it's it's really a tool. But uh, John Dominic Crisan, he's a scholar who says that Jesus's death by execution under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can be. It's interesting. Right. I'm not a historian and I'm not necessarily a scholar. No, it sounds kind of like what you were saying with Chuck Missler that he's more convinced that Jesus is who he said he was than he is who he says he is. Right. And that seems to be right about the same thing. Like it, 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 it kind of blows my mind where people are like, I'm not sure if I want to believe that Jesus exists or that he rose from the dead. And I'm like, you don't know the history. Well, Right. Like right. there's a re it wasn't an accident that Jesus was born when he was like, it was an, an example of divine providence, mm-hmm. you know, inserting Christ into the timeline at the time that he did underneath the Roman empire, knowing that he would face the most brutal form of execution devised by man. 
and knowing that the secular government would actually authenticate his his burial and right. resurrection by way of their own protocols. Uh-huh. How, how do you ignore that? Right. It's 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 crazy. And the the Bible and the historical record therein has undergone more scrutiny and authentication than any other book. No one questions the writing of the writings of Aristotle's, like Aristotle's poetics. No one questions that they're from him, that he wrote them, and that everything, you know, that he thought. Like we say, Aristotle thought this. Nobody questions Leapfrog. What's Leapfrog? The little books. Yeah? Yeah, the little children's books, right? Yeah, I just got one for my son not too long ago. Oh, so you know what a Leapfrog is. Okay. Nobody's questioning, did Leapfrog really write that? (laughs) No, it's just the extreme measure of dying a thousand, you know, death by a thousand qualifications. That we love to run through when it comes to Christ. Right. But realistically, historically speaking, by every metric that we use to authenticate historic documents or even historic events, the Bible, Jesus Christ living, dying, and his resurrection is just as verifiable as any other historic event that we have record of. Even more than the moon landing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's funny <clears throat> and nobody worth their grit at this point w- would argue some of those things and I, I really think just a little bit of intellectually honest investigation will, will point you in the right direction I agree Middleburg tells us also in his book that all four gospels report that the tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea a, a member of the Jewish court called the Sanhedrin which had turned Jesus over to the Roman uh procurator Pontius Pilate for execution. It is very unlikely that Christians would have invented a detail like that. Jesus's body was buried in the tomb of a member of the council that had sought Jesus execution. Mm. Like so much of this stuff, if you were, if you were creating it and crafting it to be a lie would have done it way different. Right. All four gospels also report that the first four people to discover the tomb to be empty were female followers of Jesus, including Mary Magdalene a formerly demon-possessed woman. This is another detail that no Christian making up a fictitious story about the resurrection of Jesus would have invented, especially because in that culture that was reluctant to accept the testimonies of women because it didn't consider them to be reliable witnesses. Not only did they not consider them to be reliable, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. Yeah, that's crazy. why would you say that women were the first one to see him unless you're really just detailing the events that actually... The actual truth, right? Yeah. Middleburg goes on to say that if Jesus' body had remained in the tomb, the belief of his resurrection would have had no credibility. The authorities could have easily exhumed his body and said, look, here's your dead Messiah and your leader. If the whereabouts of his burial site had not been known, that is... If one denies the story of Joseph's tomb, then it's again unlikely that the reports of his resurrection would have been taken seriously by anyone. Mm. So it's, it's documented. This is where he was. And all of the sudden after being guarded by um, Roman soldiers, right? Didn't Pilate say, make it as sure as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they used to have to not only place a a boulder over the name, place the Roman seal on top of that. 
and the Roman seal carried with it a penalty that anyone who broke it without the approval of the emperor would be put to death. Interesting. Right? So you needed that. I mean, I think they would, I don't, I, don't, I, I imagine they took caution tape, like the police <laughs> carrier, but they didn't have that. So whatever strips or whatever that they would use, I, think, I believe they would put a wax, uh, uh, glob of wax on it, seal it with the emperor's wing, mm-hmm. and then, or not his ring, but seal it with his signet. Okay. And then the only person, you'd have to have that signet in order to break the seal. Okay. And if you didn't have that and you broke it, you'd be executed. Interesting. This is why the guards freaked out. And, and this is the, the conspiracy with the guards and the religious leaders to say, hey, we'll tell this story. Don't you worry. You just tell this lie that you got overtaken or whatever, right? Yeah, it doesn't work. No. Because if they had gotten overtaken, as far as the Romans were concerned, mm-hmm. they would have been executed. Right. You should have died there at the spot. You went into hiding. Uh-huh. You didn't get overtaken. You had something to do with this. <laughs> so we're going to get the truth out of you. And we got to cut it out of you, boy. Right. Yeah. So all these things point to it. And then I, th- I find it really interesting that Jesus had brothers, Jude and James, mm-hmm. uh, um, among other siblings, who there's an event that's recorded in the Bible where they actually try to bind him and take him away because they think he's crazy. I mean, if you have siblings and one of them's proclaiming to be the Messiah, yeah, they need to be in an institution. Let's let's get that straight jacket and let's get this taken care of. I don't know why of. I could see Kevin Hart right now. Ah, put me down. What are you doing? No. <laughs> Imagine Jesus like that. If you don't put me down, what is wrong with you? Uh, you was talking about walking on water yesterday, bro. We we have a place for you. It has padded walls and it comes with straw. Yeah. Right? You're going to spend some time there. But these brothers of Jesus, Jude and James, end up writing those books in the New Testament. Jude and James. So as a brother... And having enough scuffles with my brothers, I go, what would they have to do to convince me that they were the Messiah? Maybe come back from the dead. You said maybe. You're not even sure. No, I'm not that. I'm not even sure. I'm going to be real skeptical. <laughs> Nathan wrecks another one of these motorcycles, and he decides to come back after. I'm going to be like, uh, you're going to have to walk me through this. I don't know. I'm going to have to see if you wreck another one, because the real Nathan would wreck again. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, for them to get convinced, especially having grown up with them, that there's some things that they would have had to be exposed to. Right. It, as well as with the ridicule that Jesus had to receive. Because mm-hmm. that's not even your full brother. Right. You were the half-brother from the from the whore. Right. If anything, it'd just be easy to walk away from that and try to pretend like it never happened. Right, because you know they were like that. Uh-huh. I mean, Mary says that she was impregnated by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're calling her a whore. Right. Nobody, if you pay attention to the Bible, no... I don't want to say nobody. It wasn't a widely accepted thing that Mary was a virgin because Jesus gets in a pretty heated debate with the Pharisees and they're like, mm, you don't even know who your daddy is. Oh, another testament to why I think Jesus was black. <laughs> Cause uh, he doesn't know who his daddy is. I couldn't resist, man. It was wow. right there. seven, seven fifty on the betrayal. <laughs> yeah. Daddy identification issues. His brothers fled him. Oh, man. There's a lot of little things here. The court didn't try his case right. <laughs> They're all illegal trials? Oh, yeah. All of his bad. At night? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See what I'm saying? He set him up. He's got all the symptoms. That's funny. <laughs> oh, man. 
uh, I don't need, I can't get my brain to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I keep thinking that we're all brothers, right? Like, because we're brothers in the faith. Yeah. But we're like brothers in the faith. <laughs> exactly. Brothers for real, right. Jesus. They wouldn't even let us on the back of the donkey. We have to walk everywhere. <laughs> our oh, our air Jesuses are wearing out. Oh, air Jesus. <laughs> yeah. As you see, I've carried this information for a while. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of independent research to come to these conclusions. Oh, that's so funny. Another interesting thing that we have to take into consideration is because the people that were al- the people that wrote about these events were not the only ones alive at the time, right? Correct. Anyone could have written to refute the claims. All right. No one did. All the refutation comes later. There's not a single piece of evidence that any contemporary wrote to dispute the events described in the New Testament. Right. That's that's, that's not staggering. nothing. Yeah. That's a big deal. The only arguments against the, the things that took place were for people that were not even alive at the time that they happened. Like, that's, that's hubris right there. That reminds me of when we were like, hey, Native Americans, did you make the serpent mound? Uh-uh, we didn't do it. We go, nah, we think you did it. <laughs> we weren't here, and we hear what you're saying, but we, we think you did it and just didn't remember it. Like, that's crazy. Right. To go back and look at well-documented, like, I think, what is it, 42 people wrote about the life of Jesus in, in one way or another, addressed some goings-on about the life of Jesus. 20 of them are from the Bible. 22 of them are outside of the Bible. And you have people that are coming, born after the fact, going, you know, I don't think that's right. That, that takes a, a tremendous amount of hubris, right? Okay, I see your point. Now, in their defense, mm-hmm. if you were told some unbelievable stuff that you didn't eyewitness it, right? Okay. Would you be inclined to believe it or would you be skeptical about it? Be like, I don't know. I mean, there's right to be to be a little skeptical, but there's no evidence of the contrary. Like, what is right. it that, that, that Sherlock Holmes is known for saying that, that once the uh, impossible is ruled out, ruled out, then whatever is left, however improbable has to be true. Right. I get that. I mean, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Okay. But you're looking at all the evidence and going, eh, I don't have any evidence for my argument. I'm going to go with that argument anyway. Uh, I'll grant you that. You know, I, I was a bit, sympathetic to the person that just jumps on the scene they're born maybe next thing you know 15 years later they're going through this this thing their bar mitzvah or whatever and they're talking about jesus and they're like i ain't seen this right this has never happened i've never seen somebody resurrected from the dead my my issue would be what do you do with the other 500 people that were resurrected and went into the city <laughs> yeah that's because an issue. it is my contention that this is the birth story of zombies <laughs> Could be. I'm just saying, okay, you can contest whether or not Jesus resurrected. Somebody has to have a horror story about 500 dead folk resurrecting to and going into the city. Uh-huh. That, yeah, that's something else completely. Right. Like, you turn a corner, and all of a sudden, you you see Ahmed, well, it's probably not the right Jewish name, Ishkabal, and he's like, he's like, uh. you're like, Ish? Ish, is that you? Yeah. You owe me money. 
Yeah, yeah, you do. You owe me a few demerits. And I'm going to tell the Romans where you at because they're still looking for you. Right, right. Like, like, like 500, dude. That's a lot. That ch- If two happened in a city. Okay, if one person got up in Columbus, raised from the dead, that's going to probably be on the news. Right. 500? People are leaving the city. Like, can you imagine driving up 71 and Green Lawn starts getting empty? <laughs> and you're like, whoa, what's happening here? Yeah. Like, that's, that is wild. Yeah. I don't, it's you, crazy. you can't really contest those types of things. Right. I mean, you can, but, and, and again, I don't. Not if you're going to be intellectually honest. That's it. Yeah. I think you should ask the question. Because we're always saying curiosity, ask the question, but look at it honestly. Right, right. Look at it honestly. I have some really interesting um, historical information here because some of the people that 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 didn't believe in Jesus, right? They didn't buy into the 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 cult of the way, which is what the real, real early Christians were called. Still took note of some of the events that took place. Mm-hmm. But then they have to try to rationalize the event in, in a different way. So, so it's interesting. I think this adds more credibility to the events when outside people are going, oh, well, yeah, that happened. I just don't think it happened because the way they said. But So we'll g- get into it a little bit here. Um, Thallus, which was a, a Samaritan-born historian. He's one of the—actually, the first Gentile writers to, to mention Christ. Okay. He might have even been the first one— and written his history uh, before even the Gospels. Oh, wow. So it's like right after. But he references the darkness that happens during Jesus' crucifixion, which took place in the middle of the day. So darkness in the middle of the day, people were going to notice. Right. So he wrote in about 52 AD. So that'd be, what, 20 years? Maybe not quite 20 years after the fact. Okay. And he tells the the history of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean from the time of the Trojan War to his own time. So so he wrote wrote of history. And his specific original papers are lost, but we do have um, the uh, historians that come after him citing his work. Okay. And and one of these writers would have been Julius Africanus. Have you heard of him? I have. He was commissioned uh, by Emperor Servus. Is that how you say his name? Servus? I think so. Uh, but he was commissioned to build the emperor's library at the Pantheon in Rome. I think it's Severus. Severus? Yeah. That makes more sense. I knew it didn't sound right when I said it. Uh, but uh, Julius Africanus eventually becomes uh, a Christian. And he writes that uh, Thallus, in the third book of his hist- histories, explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun. And Tha- um, Julius Africanus says, unreasonably, this is an unreasonable conclusion, is it? as it comes to me, because the reality is, is because the crucifixion, crucifixion took place after the Passover, it couldn't have taken place during an eclipse to account for the darkness because the whole Jewish calendar is based off of the lunar calendar. Right. So it couldn't have been an eclipse. So that's why Julius Africanus is saying, eh, this historian wrote of the darkness that it took place at his crucifixion, but... It's not because of an eclipse. It had to be something else. So that's okay. interesting. I think we, uh, we also have uh, Phlegon. And uh, he what he wrote was called the Chronicles of the um, Olympiads. 
He's another ancient writer. <clears throat> and Origen, I'm terrible with these names. Origen uh, wrote in a discourse um, with Celsus about the um, the darkness and the earthquake that happened at the crucifixion. Sure, it's not Origen. Origen? That sounds better. So we have Origen writing uh, Celsus. Celsus is the antagonist of the Christian narrative. He's like, there's no way that this darkness and this earthquake happened. So in response to what Celsus is saying, uh, would you say Origen? I believe that's right. Okay, Origen writes... <clears throat> With regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appeared to have been crucified, and the great earthquake which then took place, Phlegon too has written in his 13th or 14th book of the Chronicles. So he's saying, look, it's not just us. There's a, uh, this other his guy writing history, and he says, look, in the time of Tiberius Caesar, Jesus was crucified, and there was a great earthquake and darkness that took place. And of course, Celsus responds and he's like, you know, I imagine that both the earthquake and the darkness were all an invention. But then we get Oregon responds and he says, but regarding these, we have in preceding pages made our defense according to our ability, uh, adducing the testimony of Phlegon who relates that these events actually took place. So again, we have people that that existed after the fact going, you know what? I read it in history. Like we were saying, I just don't believe it. We got no people that were actually there. People that witnessed it are like, no, this stuff took place. We don't all agree. You know, we're not all succinctly saying that, Oh, it's because he's the Messiah. Cause these are like people outside of culture, but they're going, these events really did take place. Okay. And, and, and we can't just, even though we don't have an explanation, we can't say they didn't. You can't just dismiss it that way. Right. I think a lot of current writers actually fall victim to the same trap of seeing the evidence and refusing to believe it. Because there's a, um, reminds me, there's a liberal scholar, E.P. Sanders, and he, he admits, he's like, the, uh, he says that the Jesus' followers and later Paul, they did have resurrection experiences. He's like, in my judgment, that's a fact, but what, what the reality of that is, gave rise to like what the experience really was. I don't know. Hmm. I like that they hold that Paul also had a resurrection experience because we talked about that. in a prior episode when he was stoned and left for dead, that some people argue that he was actually dead, right? Went to the, the upper heavens and got a message and then came back and was resurrected. Right. Right. So that's really interesting. It is interesting. But again, it, it, it sounds a lot like hubris that you just not wanting to, to accept it. You're like, look, I believe all these followers saw Jesus after he was rose from the dead. I don't think it was real, but I think that they all had this experience. That's a, that, those are some weird mental gymnastics right. to, to try to rationalize it. Absolutely. So again, to, to borrow Vody Bauckham, cause this is just a solid statement after all this insight and, and digging up the facts of the scholarship we have in reference to the Bible, we have a reliable set of historical documents that are written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that tell of supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecy and the writers claim that their writings are divine and not human in origin. That's dope. Yes. We can, it, it is a knowledge-based belief system. Right. 
it's, it's really not an issue of evidence. It's an issue of the heart. It's that's it right there. Like that's the million dollar point. It is most people. It's not that they don't have sufficient evidence to believe. It's really, they don't want to believe. Right. Because it then forces a decision. Cause anytime you encounter truth, you have to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And if Jesus truly exists and is God, then there are subsequent things that he said to do that have to immediately be taken into the calculus of the assessment. Right. And right. now the person has to decide, basically, are you going to yield your life yeah. to this person and begin to make certain changes or are you going to keep rolling on your own? And it's easier when you don't want to yield to find an excuse for why you don't want to believe. Right. Have you heard that bit that Tim Ross does? What? All you no. have to, all, the only thing you have to say to an unsaved person of Jesus, he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. That's he, all you have to say. Yeah. It, this is great. He goes through this thing. He's like, so I'm, I'm, I'm a homosexual. He's like, that's fine. Jesus loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He's like, uh, uh, you know, goes through a bunch of things. He's like, I'm a murderer in prison. He's like, that's fine. Jesus loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Okay. He's like, that's the only thing that you have to say to an unsaved person. And he's like, but here's, he's like, that's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But here's the, here's the bad news. If you accept this, if you believe this to be true, then you have to die for him the way he died for you. I was like, that is an expensive idea. Yeah. Expensive. It requires immediate response. It does and affects your whole life. Yeah. That's why it's more of an issue of the heart and less of an issue of evidence. It's really difficult to attenuate your heart to a God you don't like. And this is why we see the character of God is just vehemently attacked more than the evidence, the actual character of God. You look at Darwin, Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris. Like, it seems to be the greater amount of faith is needed for the unbeliever. And not for sake of scientific reasons, like you might think. Mm-hmm. But the faith that's required to white-knuckle the idea that God's character is flawed, and if flawed, unjust, and if unjust, then hated. And it's easy to disregard something that you hate. Wow. Right on. But as we were saying er- earlier... It is really a life necessity to understand and behave in accordance to reality. And there are times I don't like being a Christian. I'll, I'll admit it. Mondays and Tuesdays are tough. The, the <laughs> days that end in Y are right? usually pretty tough. Well, I was going to say days begin with T. <laughs> and Tuesday, Thursday, today, and tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's not all Jesus help me and sunshine and rainbows. I mean, there's discipline, sacrifice, judgment, displacement loneliness. Like it is, it is not an easy road to walk, but we don't believe in Jesus just because of a warm, fuzzy feeling we get when we think about it. Right. We believe in Jesus because of the evidence, because the only way to be intellectually consistent is to accept the reality of Jesus Christ's divinity and orient our lives after that fact. Boom. Boom. I think C.S. Lewis might've said it best. One of my favorite books, I mean, I guess the jury's still out on C.S. Lewis, but Mere Christianity is really an incredible book. You do like that. I do. Because he thinks about everything opposite of the way I would. Approaches every argument inside out, and I just, I find that amazing. Because I don't see any of it coming, even though I've read it like three times. Hmm. But he makes this statement, and I re- it, it encapsulates some of what we're saying so well. He said, 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not have been a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man that says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Mm. I love that. Yeah, that's well said. And lastly, since we're talking about Jesus and we're closing out for the whole year, Chuck Missler has this great list of the attributes and names and characteristics of Jesus Christ. So I thought, what better place to go into this than at the very end of our last episode of the year, Operation Red Pill, is Jesus the Son of God? He is King of the Jews, King of Israel, King of all the ages, King of heaven, King of glory, King of kings. And Lord of Lords. Do you really know him? A prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua, an offering in place of Isaac, a king from the line of David, a wise counselor above Solomon, a beloved, rejected, exalted son like Joseph, yet far more. The heavens declare his glory, and the firmament shows his handiwork. He who is, who was, and who always will be the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the alpha and the tau, the A and the Z, the first fruits of them that slept, the I am that I am, the voice of the burning bush. He is captain of the Lord's host. He was the conqueror of Jericho. He is enduringly strong. He is entirely sincere. He is eternally steadfast. He is immortally graceful. He is impurely powerful. He is impartially merciful. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the very God of very God. He is our kinsman redeemer, and he is our avenger of blood. He is our city of refuge, our performing high priest, our personal prophet, our reigning king. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of theology. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the miracle of the ages, the superlative of everything good. We are the beneficiaries of a love letter. It was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea about 2,000 years ago. He was sacrificed on a cross of wood, yet he made the hill on which it stood. By him were all things made that were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. By him are all things held together. And what held him to that cross, you might ask? It wasn't nails. Because at any time, he could have said, enough already. I'm out. I'm done. But it was his love for you and for me. He was born of a woman so that we could be born again. He humbled himself so that we could be lifted up. He became a servant 
so that we could be joint heirs with him. He suffered rejection so that we could become his friends. He denied himself so that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. He is available to the tempted and the tried. He blesses the young. He cleanses the lepers. He defends the feeble. He delivers the captives. He discharges the debtors. He forgives the sinners. He franchises the meek. He guards the besieged. He heals the sick. He provides strength for the weak. He regards the aged, rewards the diligent. He serves the unfortunate. He sympathizes and he saves. His offices are manifold. His reign is righteous. His promises are sure. His goodness is limitless. His light is matchless. His grace is sufficient. His love never changes. His mercy is everlasting. His word is enough and his yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible. He's invincible. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Man cannot explain him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him and soon learned they couldn't stop him. Pilate, the personal representative of the ruler of the world, couldn't find any fault with him. The witnesses couldn't agree against him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death can't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. He has always been and always will be. He had no predecessor and will have no successor. You can't impeach him and he isn't going to resign. His name is above every name that at the name of Yeshua, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His His is is the the kingdom, kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.